One of the unavoidable dangers of Christian worship is that we lift snippets of the Bible out of their context and flow within the larger work. We do this to make the text digestible and in order to focus our attention. But in doing so, we risk missing out on the context and the significance that the text plays in the whole. And it strikes me that this account of the transfiguration of, of Jesus is particularly vulnerable to this possibility. Heard in isolation, we have this wonderful and bizarre spiritual event. Jesus has brought Peter and James and John up to the mountaintop, and there before them, Jesus is transfigured. His, his clothes shine so brilliantly that they become the envy of laundry detergent companies everywhere. And then out of nowhere, the great biblical figure of Elijah and Moses appear. In response to this mind-boggling sight, Peter floats the idea of building dwelling places for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But of course, Peter only says this because he is babbling in fear. And yet, as Peter is saying this, a cloud descends upon them. And from the cloud, a voice announces, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. When the three disciples look again, they only see Jesus. Here is this spiritual event and mystical experience. Taken in isolation, it is strange and maybe even unfathomable. Clearly something has happened, but just what has happened is hard to say. But this is not an isolated incident. This is an event that is connected to something larger and points beyond itself towards God's interactions with humanity. That Elijah and Moses join Jesus on this mountain is no accident. After all, the lives of both were in no small part defined by encountering God on mountains. And with these two figures, we see two of God's prophets who spoke with God and wrestled with God. They embody a, a continuity, and their lives point to the faithfulness of God and God's journey with humanity. Their presence tells us that the events of the transfiguration are connected to the greater whole. But beyond this, we also need to recognize where the transfiguration happens in the greater context of Jesus's ministry. The transfiguration does not happen randomly, but takes place six days after Peter had just correctly pronounced that Jesus is the Messiah. Oddly enough, in response to this proclamation, Jesus sternly tells the disciples that they are to tell no one. To the disciples' minds, they've got the greatest news in the world, and yet it seems that they aren't supposed to share it. And what's more, in contrast to their expectations, Jesus tells the disciples that as the Messiah, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, be rejected by the religious authorities, 
and be killed at the hands of the Romans, only to be raised on the third day. And even more than that, Jesus tells his followers that if they want to be his disciples, then they must take up their own crosses and follow him. For it is only in doing this that they will find themselves. It is only in doing this that they will be saved. We can imagine in response to this news that the disciples are confused and dismayed. For them, it would be akin to realizing that you won the lottery, but as a result, you had to declare bankruptcy and live on the streets. We might take the cross and the rejection it represents for granted, at least intellectually. But consider for a moment what it must have been like for the disciples to hear that their Messiah must be rejected and killed, and that they, in turn, must take up their own crosses. In this light, it occurs to me that perhaps Jesus didn't bring these three disciples to the mountaintop because they were special, but instead brought them because they were the most vulnerable. Perhaps they needed something to, to help them hold on to their faith in the midst of the, the difficult news that Jesus had shared. And in this way, the transfer, transfiguration acts as both a, a confirmation and a subversion. It confirms Jesus' identity as the Messiah, while also confirming the hard words that Jesus has to share about his upcoming death and about the nature, the true nature of discipleship. And in so doing, this mountaintop experience subverts the disciples' expectations about the nature of the Messiah and what it means for them to follow. In this way, the transfiguration reveals something deeply true and really real while also announcing that there is so much more to come. Jesus and his three friends must leave the mountain. And when they do so, they are immediately thrust back into the world where calamity and suffering dominate people's lives. But it is in that calamity and suffering that Jesus is to be found. It is in the midst of that calamity and suffering where Jesus is present. Oddly enough, the experience of the mountaintop is a fleeting moment to the disciples. The experience doesn't sustain the disciples in their trials in Jerusalem. They don't seem to remember the mountaintop as Jesus faces trial and execution. The events of the transfiguration don't keep the disciples from scattering, and they don't keep Peter from denying Christ. The transfiguration only gains meaning later, after. So I wonder, I wonder if you've had moments in your life like the transfiguration. Have you had those moments where, where God seems particularly close and a hidden glory is, is suddenly revealed? I have to admit that I probably would not be here if I had not had experiences like that. But the odd thing is that even though I've had those moments in the past, it has not stopped me for, from, has not stopped me from longing for those moments again 
at points I have desperately hoped for a moment of enlightenment and insight with the thought that this sort of moment would confirm my, my fragile faith, even though I had experienced moments like them before. But if we go to the mountaintop with Jesus this morning, then we can see just how fleeting these sorts of moments truly are. Even if we do have them, we will still inevitably, we will need to walk in faith. And if we walk in faith, then we're walking in uncertainty. But the good news is not really that the glory of Jesus was revealed on the mountaintop. The good news is that after the glory was revealed, Jesus comes down from the mountain to be with a suffering and bewildered humanity. The good news is that God comes to be with us, not only in the brilliant moments of insight, but in the suffering and the confusion of our lives. Yes, God speaks in the extraordinary, but all the more, God is present in experiences that are mundane and ordinary and even painful. God's presence is not restricted to, to certain private experiences on mountaintops, but rather is often hidden in the brokenness of the everyday world. It is this hidden presence perceived only in faith that must challenge our belief and our religiosity and our easy ideas about what spirituality is. Taken in isolation, the transfiguration is about growing in glory. But as we've seen, it is not isolated. It is a, a mountaintop experience, but perhaps it is also a false peak. As an event in the life of Jesus, it is a part of a life that is headed toward the hard cross of Good Friday and the elusive mystery of Easter morning. The transfiguration only finds its meaning in the desolation of the cross and in the enigma of the resurrection. For us, it is not the mountaintop, but this very life with all of its joys, confusion, suffering, and desperation that is the true arena of God's saving work in our lives. It is here amidst impeachments and pandemics that God is active and alive. Here, in our day-to-day, -day, here is where God is to be truly found because it is here in the day-to-day -day that God seeks us. It is here in the day-to-day -day that God is present. Amen.